Good morning, Livingstone Church. We're glad that you're able to join us as we seek from our separate locations to meet with the Lord and to hear from Him and His Word as we sing His praises and pray to Him. Just a couple quick announcements for this week. We will be continuing our Monday evening Zoom check-ins at 7.30 p.m. And our prayer meeting is at 8 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. And community groups are this week. So check in with your community group leader about details for how you're planning to meet. If you're looking for the Zoom links for the Monday evening and Wednesday morning meetings, you can go to our website and click on the announcement bar at the top of the homepage or on the link below the banner that says, please click here for our coronavirus updates. Before our call to worship, I wanted to say a few things about the flow of our service for today. It may look a little different than other weeks in that it will be mostly singing and praying. I will be reading a few different written prayers which are footnoted there on your worship guide. And I should say that we always sing and pray during our services. So what's the difference this morning? Well, we often like to explain the different elements of worship as we go through the service. But this week there will not be those explanations. There will be more of an unbroken flow from reading to prayer to song as we go through the service. And we hope that this will provide an opportunity for a quieter time of contemplation. I know that I personally have been seeking to try and slow down during this time of quarantine. And let me tell you, it is difficult. But I pray that this time of worship this morning would aid you in trying to slow down and meet with the Lord and hear from His Word. So let us go before Him now in our call to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful but I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall. But on the beloved's arms, I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shall shame thy name. But if enlightened, guided, upheld by thy spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my sun to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy Son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness, for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, 
His meekness for my pride, His constancy for my backslidings, His love for my enmity, His fullness for my emptiness, His faithfulness for my treachery, His obedience for my lawlessness, His glory for my shame, His devotedness for my waywardness, His holy life for my unchaste ways, His righteousness for my dead works, His death for my life. of God, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. O mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts? Oh, God of Jacob, fierce and
confession is Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 38 and 44 to 47. I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles as this is also part of the text for today's sermon. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. King of creation, we come to you as our deliverer confessing our inability to love and forgive. Like Simon the Pharisee, we are confused by our own so-called goodness. We often judge others for their sins, particularly the sins that affect us. We hold the sins of others against them, even when they have repented of them, speaking badly of them and considering ourselves better than them. When we have been genuinely sinned against and the person is not repentant, We cut them off from our lives. We do not pray for them. We do not wish that they be restored to you and delivered from their sin, and we certainly do not love them. Like Simon, we love little. Yet we have been forgiven so much. Our unwillingness to forgive, our hardness of heart, and our selfishness are exactly what Jesus had to die for on the cross. Draw us near to this scene, Lord. As you looked upon your Son when he became sin for us, you saw our unforgiving spirit, our inability to love, our selfish desire to establish kingdoms where our will is done. Yet Jesus was the one upon whom your just and holy wrath was poured out. It was our sin that nailed him there, our sin that you punished, our sin that left Jesus forsaken by you. 
Yet we are given the credit of one who did nothing that ever needed to be forgiven. When you look upon us, we are given the status of sons and daughters who love consistently, selflessly, and perfectly, because this is exactly how Jesus lived on our behalf. In light of this gospel, Father, we see that we are without excuse. We have been forgiven a vast debt. We should be left in wonder and gratitude for the immeasurable love you have shown us. Help us by your Spirit to know these truths deeply in our hearts. Change us, we pray, into those who love much, because we have been loved so deeply. Make us sons and daughters who forgive with sincerity and with the desire to restore, so that we might reflect our glorious Savior, who forgave us at such a great cost to himself. Lead us home, Lord, where we will no longer struggle against this unforgiving, unloving flesh, but fellowship together in the perfect unity that you have prepared for us in Christ. Amen. From my sin, oh 
salvation's joy impart. Steadfast make my willing heart. Sinners then shall learn from me and return, O God, to Thee. of pardon from Luke 7, 48-50. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I see all I 
prayer, I will be praying for the world, for our nation, the city, and uh, community church here in Oshkosh, for our own church, and then we will pray for our individual needs. At the end of each prayer, I will say, Lord, in your mercy, you can respond, hear our prayer, and then we will pray the Lord's Prayer after that. Father, you have commanded all the earth to make a joyful noise to you to serve you with gladness, and to come into your presence with singing. Yet we look around us, and we do not see a world that worships, serves, or joyfully sings your praises. We are grieved by the sin around us and the sin within us. We are grieved to see the nations raging and the kingdoms tottering, not just during a global pandemic, but even during times of what might appear on the surface like times of peace. But we know, Lord, that you, the Lord of hosts, are with your people as you have promised to be. You, the God of Jacob, are our fortress. May we be still and know that you are God, knowing that you will keep your promises to exalt yourself among the nations, 
Yes, you will exalt yourself in all the earth. Father, in the midst of these times that we look at as uncertain, we ask that you would cause many across this world to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. May the certainty of his perfect life, death, and resurrection be the hope and healing that no medicine or doctors can provide. Father, we ask you to strengthen and use your church throughout the world to be a bold and compassionate witness to those who are suffering. Remember, remind us that our safety and security in this world are fleeting and that yours is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, be merciful to us as a nation. During this time of polarization, political jockeying, finger-pointing, and backbiting, we pray that you would strip away our pride and hatred. Lord, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. May those you have placed in positions of leadership look humbly to you for guidance and not to their own political bases. May you cause them to make decisions that uphold justice and righteousness for all. We pray for those who are suffering, suffering physically, financially, and emotionally due to the coronavirus and the measures that have been taken to slow its spread. In the midst of these many challenges, may people not turn more inward to the false gods of self-sufficiency and self-protection, but throw off all notions of self and turn in faith and repentance to you. Lord, we ask that you would awaken the dead hearts of millions across our land. As churches are not meeting in person and many people have more time on their hands, we pray that there would be deep heart searching and a reevaluation of our spiritual lives. We pray for wisdom for the churches across this country as things start to open up again and we face the challenges of trying to get back to a sense of normalcy. May the shaking up that we have experienced over these last six weeks not cause a deeper sense of spiritual apathy, but a longing and hunger for communion with you and with one another. Father, we cry out to you for a deeper unity of our church, across of your church across this nation. May we seek to work together and clearly testify the good news of the gospel to those in our midst who desperately need to be reconciled to you. Lord, in your mercy. Our faithful and gracious God, we pray for this city and the surrounding communities. We pray for those who are suffering from food shortages, financial difficulties related to job loss, and the many others who have been impacted in unexpected ways. We pray for those in authority to make wise decisions that help those who are most vulnerable. Father, we pray for the churches in Oshkosh to have wisdom about working together during this challenging season in a way that promotes unity and displays the love of Christ to the broken world around us. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for Community Church and Pastor Allen and Pastor Carl. God, we praise you for the growing hunger to impact this region with the gospel. We praise you for the young leaders who are emerging and striving to be faithful to your call on their lives. And we praise you for the way people are striving to reach out to one another, even in the midst of the pandemic. God, we pray for Community Church as they strive to raise up younger leaders in accordance with 2 Timothy 2.2. And we pray for their growth in unity, even as they are dispersed due to the coronavirus. 
Father, may their eyes be open to the doors that you are opening, and may they have courage and strength of the Holy Spirit to walk through those doors in obedience. Lord, in your mercy. Father, thank you that our hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in him alone. He is our hope in life and death. We thank you that though we cannot be together face to face as a church, that our unity in Christ, our love for you, and our love for one another are not diminished. Thank you that even as we tune in online in our separate homes, that we can pray and sing and hear your word read and preached. Thank you for the opportunities to gather together during the week on our many Zoom calls. And while we know that it is no replacement for our face-to-face meetings, and as we feel the weight of our continued separation, Father, we ask that you would put within each one of us a deeper longing for being reunited with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we remember now more than ever that Jesus is the head of Livingstone Church. May we look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Father, may we remember that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Help us to rest in that reality as we wait with joyful hope for his coming again. Lord, in your mercy. Take a few moments now to go before the Lord with your own individual needs. Lord, in your mercy. Let's pray together the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hello, Livingstone Church. This is James Lima coming to you from our dining room, which, now that I think about it, is an appropriate place to preach a passage about a banquet. I wish that I could see you all face to face today, but it's my prayer that you would still be built up and fed by God's word. Now, I'd like to begin with a question for you to ponder today. What does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean to love Jesus? Now, when I say love Jesus... I'm not talking about thinking Jesus is neat or thinking he's a good teacher or that he's a fascinating topic to study. I'm talking about loving Jesus. Well, one answer that we get in scripture is that to love Jesus is to keep his commands. Jesus taught this in 
John 14, 15, where he said, If you love me, you will keep my commands. 1 John 5, 3, it speaks of loving God in a similar way, where John writes this, For this is to love, or for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How incredible is it that John includes that last statement, and his commands are not burdensome. But again, this definition of loving God here is keeping his commandments. Now, certainly this goes against any idea that Christianity is just about having some vague sort of love for God and then living however we want to live, thinking that God will bless us. No, if you love Jesus, you will obey Jesus. But is that all that love for Jesus is? Imagine for a second if familial relationships were only about obedience. Imagine if all that it meant for children to love their parents was simply to obey them. Loving Jesus is far more than just obeying Jesus, though it's not less than obeying Jesus. Love for Jesus is something that involves our affections and our emotions. And I know sometimes Presbyterians get a bad rap for being unemotional. I think my favorite Babylon Bee headline, uh, Babylon Bee is a Christian satire website if that's your sort of thing. But my favorite headline on that site is this. Motion-activated lights turn off during Presbyterian worship service. We have a reputation for being stoic and for being doctrinal. Now, I certainly love good doctrine. Can I get an amen? However, I don't think the reputation for being unemotional is completely fair, although sometimes it is to our own shame. But it's not completely fair when you look at our theological heritage or even if you look at the doctrine that we confess now. If we remember the famous answer to the first question of our Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us that the chief end, the primary goal of human existence is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Our faith involves our hearts, our enjoyment of God, our affections. We need to remember that the commandment to love God is to love him with our whole heart along with our soul and our mind. And in our passage today, we're going to see emotions. We're going to see weeping, expensive gifts being given. We're going to see kisses and Most of all, we're going to see deep and sincere love. Today we'll be in Luke 7, verse 36 through chapter 8, verse 3, though we'll spend uh, really most of our time looking at the end of Luke chapter 7. So let's go to God's holy, true, and powerful word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet 
weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we need your assistance to understand and apply your word today. Work in us by your Holy Spirit that your word would pierce our hearts and illuminate our minds. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this in the name of our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before I give you our big idea for this passage and apply it to us, I want to really set the scene for this narrative. I think this is one of those passages that we need to feel the weight of before we understand and apply it. And it begins in verse 36, when a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus, who has been out teaching, to come to his house for a meal. And this was a fairly typical thing to do when someone was in town teaching. A banquet would be held where the guest could converse with leaders and significant people of the town over a meal. It was also common during banquets like this for the uninvited guests, those who maybe didn't have the social status to sit at the table, that those people would gather along the wall. They were allowed in, but they would gather along the wall to listen in on the conversation. And this was perfectly socially acceptable to do. And for this banquet, we see Jesus, Simon, and the other invited guests 
that they reclined at table. If you'll notice that, that phrasing in verse 36. What this tells us is that they wouldn't have been sitting in chairs. Instead, they would have uh, been leaning over on the left side of their body at a short table and their feet would be out behind them and to the side of them. And one commentator I read compared this to the spoke sticking out from the center of a wheel with the people around the table and their feet sticking out as they ate. And you'll see why this is important for the scene in just a second. In verse 37, while Jesus and Simon are reclining at the table, a woman enters the house, but not just any woman. This woman is a sinner. She's a social outcast, a woman whose reputation as dirty or polluted went with her wherever she went. And we're not told explicitly why she had the reputation of being a sinner. And many have hypothesized that she was a prostitute for some good reasons, but the text doesn't tell us directly. And I believe that the weight of the scene is the same no matter what she had done to earn her reputation. But either way, this, is, this woman is a sinner and everybody in the room would know her as such. But look at what this woman does in verse 38. She walks up to Jesus and begins weeping uncontrollably. She weeps on his feet, which are sticking out behind him as he reclines at the table. She lets down her hair and she begins to wipe off the tears. She kisses his feet over and over. She takes this expensive flask of perfume and she pours it on his feet still weeping, still kissing. We need to stop to picture this scene in our mind. In the middle of this high-class banquet meant for important intellectual discourse, we have a woman breaking a multitude of social conventions. A woman who's weeping, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, kissing him through her tears, and anointing his feet with oil. A powerfully emotional scene. But certainly Jesus would have known all of this is inappropriate, right? Certainly he'll, he'll turn to her, maybe he'll tell her to, to go away, or at least tell her to wait outside until he could talk to her at a more appropriate time. At least Simon thinks that Jesus needs to do something, right? Look at verse 39. Simon said to himself, and this implies more of a thought than words actually spoken out loud. It's more that he, he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon notices how weird, how uncomfortable, and how socially wrong this whole interaction is. But notice Jesus' response. Jesus answers him, which means that Jesus read his mind, which proves that Jesus actually is a prophet, which is what Simon was questioning in the first place. But Jesus reads his mind and he answers him and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answers, say it, teacher. And then in the following verses, verses 41 through 43, Jesus shares a parable that interprets the whole situation and reveals what is really in Simon's heart and the woman's heart. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii which was about a year and a half's wages. 
and the other 50, which is about two months' wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The basic idea is this, and it's pretty simple. The amount that you love the one who forgave your debt is proportionate to the amount of debt that you owed. The amount that you love the one who forgave your debt is proportionate to the amount of debt that you owed. Again, this is a fairly simple and straightforward idea. We see that Simon understood it right away. He understood the basic meaning and he interpreted it correctly. But we really have to get that concept to understand the rest of the passage. And it's from this parable and Jesus' use of this parable to interpret the whole situation that we get our big idea for the passage. Our big idea can be stated both as a, a basic truth and as an application of that truth. I'm going to state it both ways for us. First, our big idea stated as a basic truth. Those who love Jesus much are those who have been forgiven much by Jesus. Those who love Jesus much are those who have been forgiven much by Jesus. And if we phrase that as an application, the big idea is this. If we are to love Jesus, we must see how great his forgiveness is. If we are to love Jesus, we must see how great his forgiveness is. And this application of the basic idea should give us insight into one of the deepest struggles Christians can face. What do I do when I don't love Jesus? How can I love him more? As one of my seminary professors says, the human heart is the hardest substance in the world. It's one thing to know that love for Jesus must involve my heart, but it's another thing to battle a stubborn and a cold heart. And there is, of course, more than one biblical way to answer the question of how to love Jesus more. And any answer must ultimately begin with God's gracious work of taking hearts of stone from within us and replacing them with hearts of flesh. But for today, I'd like to apply the big idea of this specific passage. If we are to love Jesus, we must see how great his forgiveness is. And I'll lay that out with three main points. Our first main point is this. If we are to love Jesus, we must get rid of self-righteousness. If we are to love Jesus, we must get rid of self-righteousness. After telling the parable about the two debtors to Simon, Jesus applies the parable to Simon and to the woman. Look to verses 44 through 47. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, before I keep reading, I, I want you to picture this for a second. Look at the details Luke uses to describe the scene. 
Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So Jesus is still addressing Simon, but where is he looking? He's looking right at the woman. He turns and he looks right into her red, weeping eyes, even as he talks to Simon. Simon may be the more socially honored person at the table, but Jesus is worried more about caring for this woman than he is about protecting Simon's honor. And what does he say to Simon while looking at the woman? Do you see this woman? Clearly, Jesus sees her, but does Simon see her? In one sense, yes, Simon sees her. Everybody in the room would have been looking right at her throughout this whole awkward situation. But what does Simon see when he looks at her? Simon's thoughts in verse 39, they already told us this. All Simon sees is a sinner, one of those types of women. But what Jesus does is he flips the whole thing right on Simon. So this woman is a sinner, huh? Well, let's compare her to you for a minute. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. There was an etiquette for how to treat honored guests in that day. But here we learn that Simon had done none of those things for Jesus. He offered no water for Jesus' dirty feet. He didn't offer him a greeting kiss. He didn't anoint him with oil. But this sinner woman, who Simon looked down upon, did all of those things and more. This sinful, despised woman was a better host to Jesus than the owner of the house. So what was Simon's problem? His problem was that he didn't love Jesus. But why didn't he love Jesus? Because of his self-righteousness. Just like we saw with the Pharisees during the calling of Levi in Luke 5, self-righteousness, it plays this deadly comparison game. Self-righteousness, it, it looks at people we think are worse sinners than us in an attempt to justify ourselves. We, we think we can escape the reality of our guilt by just finding someone more guilty than us. It's like watching soap operas so you can feel like other people have more problems than you. But what self-righteousness misses is that you can't fix your own debt just by finding someone who has more debt. If you look at verse 42 in the parable, you realize that having 50 denarii worth of debt instead of 500 denarii worth of debt does you no good. Because we're told that neither of the debtors was able to pay their debt. Both the debt of 50 and the debt of 500 were beyond the capacity of the person in debt to pay on their own. All of us, the, the worst of us, 
and the best of us have a debt that we can't pay. And if we spend our time trying to justify ourselves through self-righteous comparison, we end up killing our ability to correctly grasp the grace and love of Jesus' forgiveness. And when you think little of Jesus' forgiveness, you will love Jesus little, which is the application of the parable. A self-righteous person may call Jesus teacher, like Simon does in verse 40, but a self-righteous person will not love Jesus. So if you desire, if you desire to love Jesus, if you want to love him more, then look at your heart. Are you harboring the sin of self-righteousness? Do you try to self-justify? Do you think that your good works are enough? Do you make yourself feel better by finding people that are worse than you? Self-righteousness kills love. And this leads us to our second point, which is related to the first, but focuses more on the woman instead of Simon. Our second point is this. If we are to love God, we must see how deep our debt is. If we are to love God, we must see how deep our debt is. In verses 44 through 47, Jesus interprets the woman's actions, not as being socially inappropriate, but instead as being perfectly appropriate expressions of love. And he validates this to the woman and he dignifies her and her actions in in such a caring way by looking at her while he explains all of that to Simon. Her actions being an expression of love actually helps us to understand why the woman was weeping in the first place. As you probably know, weeping can happen for a lot of different reasons. We, we cry at funerals, but we also cry at weddings. We cry for sad endings of books and movies, but we also cry for happy endings. We cry when the Packers make a bad draft pick, but also when they win a playoff game. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I personally tend to cry far more often for things that I find to be beautiful and joyful than I do for things that are sad. So were the woman's tears tears of joy or were they tears of sorrow? And the answer is yes, they were both. I've heard from many people who were at our wedding that they've never seen so much crying at a wedding. And those tears were, for many people at the wedding, tears of mixed joy and sorrow. Joy that Lexi and I were getting married, joy at the love that was being expressed, but it was also sorrow that things were changing, that relationships were changing, not not necessarily in a bad way, but changing nonetheless. Tears can be simultaneously tears of joy and tears of sorrow, and sometimes those tears from this stew of human emotions are the strongest tears that we cry. When the woman came up to Jesus and fell at his feet, she wept tears of sorrow because she knew, unlike Simon, the self-righteous Simon, she knew how deep her debt really was. 
she knew that she was a sinner. It's interesting how so many of the people who respond in faith to Jesus' message in the Gospels are sinners and tax collectors. People weighed down by a guilty conscience are the people who will hear Jesus' news of forgiveness as the good news that it really is. And it was this sorrow over her sin that enabled this sinner woman to understand Jesus' forgiveness and to love him for it. She most likely had heard Jesus preaching before this banquet. She heard him preach about the grace and forgiveness that can be found in him. And she knew that that message was for her. So when she found out that Jesus was at this banquet, she grabbed her most expensive perfume and she went to thank him, falling at his feet in her tears of sorrow over sin, but also in tears of joy at the forgiveness that she had found. You will never weep tears of joy at the feet of Jesus until you have wept tears of sorrow over your sin. You will never weep tears of joy at the feet of Jesus until you have wept tears of sorrow over your sin. If we long to love Jesus like this woman loved Jesus, we must understand how massive his forgiveness is. And to understand how massive his forgiveness is, we must understand how deep our debt is. All of us, because of our sin, we all owe a debt to God that we can never repay. We owe him obedience and love and every act, thought, and every word of disobedience and even every time we don't do what we should do, which is called sins of omission. We accumulate a debt that must be paid. And until we grasp that our debt is bigger than all the money we can earn in a lifetime, we will never truly love Jesus. But what about people who are mature in their Christian faith? What about people who have been battling for years to put to death their sin and by God's grace are seeing some success? Does their increase in holiness mean that they have less of a capacity to love God? Does, for say, the, the, the person who grew up in the church, who never slept around or did drugs or got arrested or did any of those, quote, big sins, do, do they have less of a capacity to love God because their debt is smaller than someone else? Now, this might be a real question for some of us, a question that we face. We might ask, do I, do I struggle, struggle to love God because I don't have the same type of testimony that the woman in this passage had? Do I need to go off and do some crazy sins so I can finally have a good testimony and return to God and then maybe I'll have a heart that loves him more? Well, let me answer that with an illustration. I grew up in a family who loved being outside. From a young age, we'd go hiking in a forest near our house. And my parents would teach us how to identify the plants and the animals that we saw. When I was still really young, I could identify the difference between a white pine, let's say, and a red pine. I could name many of the flowers that we saw. I could tell you that there was 
a cardinal in a nearby tree just by hearing its song. And when I went to college, I continued to learn more and more until I could identify different types of grass even and different water bugs living under rocks and a stream and many other random little things like that. But what I noticed is that the more that you learn about forest life, the more you see when you walk through a forest. At first, you might see yellow flowers and white flowers, but later you see that the white flowers are daisy fleabane or trillium, and that the yellow flowers are black-eyed Susan or yellow cone flowers. At first, you see the trees and maybe you can differentiate between those that have pokey needles and those that have flat leaves. But later, when you look at those same trees, you see pines, spruces, birch, oak, maple, poplar, and sumac. And it's not that the forest has changed, but your perception of the forest certainly has changed. Now, apply that to Christian maturity. As you mature in the Christian faith, you begin to apply scripture more and more to your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of God. When you do that, the inevitable result is that God becomes holier and holier in your sight. Then what happens to us? We become more and more sinful in our sight. You see things that you never saw before as you learn more about who God is and who you are as you mature as a Christian. Though a person who's been a Christian for, let's say, like 50 years, that person is most assuredly more holy than they were at conversion. But my bet is that they will also have the clearer understanding of how sinful they are than they did at conversion. I've seen it illustrated that the process of Christian maturity involves two diverging lines, two lines that get farther and farther apart as they go along. And as you mature as a Christian, the top line, which represents your understanding of God's holiness, that line gets higher and higher. But the bottom line, which represents your understanding of your sinfulness, sinfulness gets lower and lower. But the result of that widening gap between those two lines is that the cross, which bridges the gap between the holiness of God and your own sinfulness gets bigger and bigger in your sight. If you want to love Jesus more, you must see the cross as bigger than you see it now. And to do that, you must see your debt as deeper than you do now. And as God's holiness being higher than you do now. Simply put, if you want to love Jesus more, then you should meditate on the gospel the whole gospel, both your sin that necessitated salvation and meditate on the grace and forgiveness that makes salvation possible. Now, the last thing that we must see is how Jesus' forgiveness becomes ours, which leads to my final point. If we are to love Jesus, we must receive and rest in Jesus' forgiveness through faith. If we are to love Jesus, we must receive and rest in Jesus' forgiveness through faith. Look with me to verses 47 through 50. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, so see here that Jesus isn't forgiving her by minimizing her sin. He acknowledges that her sins are many, but even still, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, finally we see Jesus speaking directly to her. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When Jesus says in verse 47 that her sins are forgiven, for she loved much, he's not saying that her love was the cause of her forgiveness, that she's forgiven because she loved. What he's saying is that her love was the result of her forgiveness and that her love was evidence of her forgiveness. So how was she actually forgiven? And verse 50 gives us the answer. Your faith has saved you. So Jesus here and elsewhere in the Gospels, he makes the clear point that he, as the divine son of God, has the authority to forgive sins, which is exactly the thing that amazed and confused the crowd in this scene. Who, who is this guy that forgives sins? Only God can truly forgive sins. But we also see later in Luke and in the other Gospels what Jesus did to accomplish forgiveness by his death on the cross. The divine forgiveness that Jesus offers and that he gives here is not just forgetting the payment due, although that is a part of what forgiveness is. But the forgiveness here is paying the debt on our behalf by dying the death that we deserved. And this payment, it's applied to us. It becomes ours through faith by receiving and resting in Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Your faith has saved you. And if you're not a Christian, I want to implore you to consider what Jesus teaches you in this passage. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you know the depths of your debt? Then run to Jesus in faith to trust him and what he has done to pay the debt of sin on the cross and fall weeping at his feet in sorrow and in joy because of the magnitude of his forgiveness. And if you're already a Christian, the call to you is the same. We don't stop repenting and trusting in Jesus when we, when we become a Christian. If you long to love Jesus with the love of the woman in Luke 7, if you long to love him more than you love him now, then meditate on the gospel. Rid yourself of self-righteousness. Seriously consider the depths of your sin and confess that sin to God and turn from it. And keep running to Jesus by faith day in and day out as the only source of true forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Though our debt is too great for us to pay, in your great love you sent your only Son to make the payment for us that we could be reconciled to you. Father, strengthen our faith where it is weak. 
enliven our hearts where they are cold and open our eyes more and more to see the wonders of Jesus and his forgiveness that we would love him more, we pray. Amen. Scheme of man can ever plug me 
his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ.